I, uh, I might pray, uh, today you will need a Bible um, or perhaps to sit near somebody who does have one um, and uh, you're welcome, obviously welcome to use smartphones, uh, grab an app, maybe even in the next five minutes you could get an app like version or something like that. We use uh, the ESV um, so uh, you could uh, just grab that translation uh, if you would like. Uh, look there will be... Um, there will be moments where it's intense today, okay? And there'll be... Uh, yeah, some of you, that's like, okay. You shouldn't have that preliminary warning on every message, but um, there will be moments where it's intense and it will raise some deep um, issues and use some language that is a little confrontational um, because it's biblical language. So... Uh, it's just a bit of a warning. Bottom line is, uh, if you've got some kids and, uh, and you're a little bit nervous about it, you are welcome if we get to a point where you can kind of see where it's, go- it's going and you would like to take them out, you can. Having said that, I'm not going to be using language that doesn't appear in Scripture. Um, so uh, if you're cool with things that Scripture says, you should be okay. It's um, the bottom line. Let me, uh, let me pray. Jesus, we're here today... Um, and we're needful of you to speak to us because we don't see all the things that we need to see and we often don't see the most important things. And so we, uh, we just want to ask uh, for your help today that you would help us to see the most important things today and that you would help us to uh, respond rightly uh, to what's important. Uh, so can you please help us today. Can you, uh, can you help me not to say anything unhelpful, uh, but also not to, um, uh, not to be timid in uh, saying things that your word actually says. Um, so uh, we, we just, just look forward to what you've got to say. We're not worried or nervous about it because everything you say is good and it always takes us to a good place. So that's our expectation because we know that's what you're like. Um, and uh, so we just look forward to it. Um, amen. Well, today we're going to be continuing our look at uh, the book of James. And uh, we could have a test, right? Because this, uh, this is where it, um, it could get weird, right? You come in and it's like, okay, I'm going to give you a test about what I preached about a month ago. Who remembers? Now, some of you might. It was, uh, it was conflict. That's what it was. We, we had a look at conflict from James chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. So I just want to have a quick look at those verses just by way of reminder um some people come up to me the, after i preach you know about a week later and they go oh pete i'm sorry i don't remember what you said no it's, that's okay i don't either all right but let's just revisit it james chapter 4 verse 1 to 3 let's have a quick look what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is what we looked at. We looked at the way that the heart operates in the midst of conflict. We have desires. They battle for control of our hearts internally. And then once they've actually um, conquered our hearts, then that battle goes from an internal battle to an external battle. And uh, we start fighting with people around us. And it ends in murder, whether it be character assassination or whether it be uh, literal murder, which we actually see. Uh, Paul Tripp's got a really helpful flowchart that kind of cashes out a little bit more detail in this particular process. And I just wanted to rip through it really quickly. Uh, Seriously, this is like one of the awesomest things that Paul Tripp's ever ever done in my view. So uh, my encouragement to you is at the end of it, you could just take a photo of it and stick it on your fridge, right? Because this is actually how conflict rolls. starts with desire, right? Not necessarily good or bad, just desire. It's an open-handed desire. kind of sits there. It's like there's something that I actually want. The second step is it becomes a demand. So what actually happens is the thing that we want, we wrap our fingers around it, Right? And we say, now I have to have it. Now we've got a problem, right? Because the next step after that is we actually transition from just talking about it being a demand to a need, right? So now it's become something that is vital for life. 
Does anyone know what I'm talking about in conflict situations? It's like, if you don't give me this thing, I'm going to die. True, right? Does anyone want to admit it? You're all going, nah, it's never happened to me. And then the obvious next step is pretty straightforward. If you need this thing for life itself and there are people around you who say that they love you, then it's only a natural expectation that they provide what you need, isn't it? It's like, you love me? I need this to survive? You need to give it to me. And everyone always complies with that, don't they? It's like, yeah, Peter, you can have whatever you want right now. Well, they don't. And what happens? We get disappointed. Disappointment comes in. It's like, are you kidding? You said you love me. I needed this thing to, to live and you said that you love me, you didn't give it to me. So disappointment, you know what happens in the end? When you get disappointed with people around you who don't give you what you need to survive, in your mind, what's the last step? Well, they're bad people and they need to be punished. <laughs> so we punish them. That's what we do. And I think you can see that kind of flow in James chapter 4 verse 1 to 3. This is, this is how we get to murder. We get to murder because something gets control of our hearts. You know? And some of us, even at this point, we just go, yeah, but it's, it's, I was unfairly treated. Someone didn't look after me. Someone hurt me. They were the ones who were mostly in the wrong. And it's like, yeah, 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 I know. There's always a context to the things that people do. There's a context everything and the interesting thing about James at this point in James 4 is he's not that interested in your context (laughs) James is really interested in what's going on in your heart not necessarily your context we can talk about context but he's not that interested in it there's a bigger issue in play what's the very next thing that James says can you go back to your uh, your Bibles here James chapter 4 we're just going to read verse 4 to 6 Pulling no punches, one of the most direct rebukes in the whole Bible, the very next thing, you adulterous people. That's intense, right? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? How do you respond, I wonder, to James calling you an adulterous person? Have you you had this problem with conflict that James talks about here? He, He says to you, you're an adulterous person. Now, I wonder how you react to that. Do you just go, woo, woo? No, no, that's a bit over the top. We just had a verbal punch-up. That's all we had. Nothing more, nothing less. That's all it was. It's more to God. It's much more. And so today, I just want to take some time to lace up and get right into it today. And let's have a look at this. What, what's actually going on? And the, Where I want to start this morning is the nature of humanity. Here's... The first point this morning, uh, you are a relational worshipper and this is where you're going to need your scriptures, all right? You go right back to the creation of humanity, go back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. If you go right down to verse uh, 27, it says the way that God actually made humanity, Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now, what I'm going to draw out for you here is that humanity has been created relational. We've been created relational. How do we know that? Well, we know from the very beginning that God created us male and female. You're meant to work out more about your maleness, if you're a male, from your wife, from females. And females are meant to work out more about their femaleness from the males. There's relationality that actually goes in there, that goes on there. Go across to uh, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, you get into Genesis chapter 5 and you see this same 
terminology of image and likeness that we see in Genesis chapter 1 in Genesis chapter 5. Go down to verse 3 of Genesis 5. This is a genealogy. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and he named him Seth. So what does being made in God's image communicate at some level? It communicates that you're family. It communicates that you're relational by nature. And as you move through history, what you see, if you're not familiar with it, is that, is that God forms covenants with people. The whole way through human history, he forms covenants. And what's a covenant? Well, a covenant is a relationship. That's what a covenant is. And the covenant details the rules by which the relationship is actually going to happen. All right? One of the most important, arguably the most important Old Testament covenant, but you could argue the toss on this one, it's probably the one that gets the most uh, amount of time in the Old Testament and, and the prophets keep coming back to over and over and over again is a Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was uh, Israel uh, got rescued out of Egypt, they go to Sinai and they, uh, they make, God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai through Moses. Um, and this covenant has probably got the most famous rules that, that kind of uh, surround this covenant are the centre of it, and that's the Ten Commandments. Most people in our community know about the Ten Commandments. You know what they are? They are the rules for the relationship that God was going to have with his people, with his people Israel. Now, we know from, uh, from biblical history that uh, the first crack that the Israelites had at going into the uh, land of Canaan was highly unsuccessful. Okay, they sent 12 spies in, Ten came back, said, this is terrible. We're never going to be able to make it. And we learn a lot about how um, infectious fear is. Uh, the whole of the people decide, they tap out, we're done. Uh, two of them say we can do it, ten say we can't, and the crowd goes with the ten. Majority rules. And I'll tell you something, just as a side note, when fear is involved, the minority can rule really quickly as well. But that's, that's what we've actually got. And so what happens is... The people of Israel don't go into the promised land when God asks them to and, uh, and then God's upset with them and uh, says, you guys are going to die because you didn't trust in me. And so they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And then we come back to uh, Moses just about to die and him preaching his last sermon, which is the book of Deuteronomy. If you read Deuteronomy, it's like Moses' last sermon. He gets to see the promised land. He doesn't get to go in because he blew it at a critical time. Uh, dishonoured God. And uh, here he is preaching his last sermon. Interestingly, what actually happens is you've got the same Mosaic covenant actually gets talked about in Deuteronomy that happened 40 years earlier, roughly. And you have the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. So can you go to Deuteronomy 5 with me? Now... Deuteronomy 5, uh, there's a a nice intro. I'll just read a little bit of it um, before we get to the rules of the relationship. Now, before you think, this is is a bit weird, this rules of relationship thing. Well, I'll tell you something. Every single relationship has rules. They all operate by rules. Sometimes it's explicit and people know what the rules are. But I'll tell you something. If you break the rules of a relationship, do you know what happens to the relationship? You break it. That's how it works. You break the rules of a relationship and you break it. So God is not doing something unusual by having rules to a relationship because they all work by rules. Okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 5, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. You can just think relationship. Go down a bit more. Go down to verse uh, 7. Here's the start of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above and dot, 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 dot. And we go through all the rules. Now, here's, here's my question for you. How are the people to fulfill the rules of this relationship. Now, 
This is, this is important. The reason why this is important is because a lot of times what people do is they go, here's the rules, I've got to go and complete these rules. And who knows that you can follow the rules of a relationship and not be in relationship? True? You just, I mean, you can break the rules of a relationship and not be in relationship, but you can follow them and not be in relationship as well. So what's interesting is when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, after the rules are laid out, Moses tells you how you actually fulfil the rules of the relationship. Go, go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I think it's verse 7. Is that right? Or 4. It could be 4. I should bring my glasses. Here are Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, what's that word? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. How do you fulfill the rules of relationship? You love him. That's what you do. And I want to say to you, I want to ask you, is there any more personal relational activity than loving someone? I don't think so. In fact, you get into the New Testament and uh, the, the main thing that Jesus tells us to do, the, the summary of the law, what is it? To love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and to love your neighbour as you love yourself. Why would God tell us the main thing for humans is to love? Because we are relational by nature. That's what we are. That's the way that he's made us. We are people who give ourselves in relationship to other people and other things all the time. We have relationships with others, always connecting and relating to them. We have relationships with God. We have relationships with our phones, with our pets. It's like turn around and you'll see a human having some kind of relationship with someone or something. That's what we do. And we've seen, haven't we, that when you take someone out of a relational context, it gets messy for humans. I mean, this has been part of the discussion with Victoria with the, um, with the lockdown, hasn't it? It's like people have been saying, what about the poor single people who are stuck on their own? We know that's not cool. We know it doesn't help people. There was an article in the uh, Washington Post in, um, in March of 2015 that reported on a study... Um, and listen to this, people who reported being lonely were 26% more likely to have died than those who did not in this particular study. It matters. Relationship matters and you and I consistently give ourselves in relationship. But we are not just people who go around giving ourselves in relationship. We are worshippers as well. You know, God made the world and he made the world to centre upon him. Every created thing is to centre upon him. He made humanity to image and reflect him. And so I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this well. God did not make you to be great. He made you to be connected to someone who's great. You're an imager of him. And so if, if you're stuck in this, on the treadmill of trying to be great, I'll just tell you, just give up, will you? Like you weren't made to do that. You weren't made to be a sculpture. You were made to be a mirror. <laughs> you see the difference? Your greatness comes, if I can put it that way, in inverted commas, from reflecting something great, not from being great in and of yourself. You know, God created a garden. And uh, I mentioned this, I think, last week. God created a garden, and this garden was a temple. You think about the temple, there were three courts of the temple. You think about the world that God created. What was it? There was the, there was the world, there was the region of Eden, and then there was a garden similar to the three courts of the temple. God plants this garden in the east and it's where his very presence is. He entered the temple from the east. And then he says to um, Adam, he puts Adam in there and his job is to guard and protect it, like the priests were to guard and protect the temple later on. Um, what does that make Adam? It makes Adam the lead worshipper. That's, that's his job. And do you know what? All of his descendants, their job is to be lead worshippers in the world. That's their job. The worship of God is central to who you are and relationality is central to who you are. You are a relational worshipper. Come back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
What are the first two commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5? Verse 7. No other gods before me. No idols. What is it? It's exclusivity. That's what it is. Now, I don't even have time to talk about it, right? But you, you break exclusivity in a marriage and you watch it go downhill. There is something that's much more intense and heightened about the God of the universe wanting to have an exclusive relationship with you. But we can see some of the seeds of that in human relationships as well. Humanity was made to worship. We're made to orient around him. There was a study not that long ago. Of, I'm not even making this up, right? This is, it's, I've got the uh, research paper from the journal on my desktop, right? And I kid you not, this is what they did. They got a group of people to stand and look at a massive big, uh, I think they said it was, they were 200 feet high Tasmanian eucalypts. This is in America. This stand of eucalypt trees, they got a group of people to stand and look at that. And then they got a group of people to stand and look at a tall building, right? And then they got someone to walk past both of these groups and be clumsy and spill a whole bunch of pens on the ground. Like this is fair income. And do you know what they found? They found the people that had been looking up at this amazing stand of eucalypt trees picked up more pens than the people who looked at the building. And you go, so what? It wasn't the only experiment that they did. You know what they found in the experiment is that a sense of awe in beholding something great influences the way that people relate to each other. Secular research. And we would just go, yeah, well, we, we kind of knew that. Because you were made for something great. You were made to behold something great. And it's meant to change you. And I'll tell you something. You don't get the opportunity to decide that you're going to start worshipping, right? You, you're like a busted fire hose that's stuck on. And you just worship all the time. And it's just, it's not about turning it on or off. Like it wouldn't be right um, if a worship leader got up, I think, on Sunday mornings. And I've heard this before. It's okay if they do. Like, I'm not saying they're evil people. Like, don't go and troll them or anything, right? But... Like when, if, when worship leaders go, let's start worshipping, it's like, no, nah, I don't think so. You came in worshipping, you just do it all the time and uh, what we're really wanting to get people to do is to turn their worship to God rather than other things. This is the story of human history, is that humanity never ends up in a worship vacuum. Don't stop worshipping God and all of a sudden we're neutral. We just start worshipping something else. There is a slot inside of you that's made for God, it's made for deity, and if God doesn't fill it, you find something else to shove in there. That's that's the way that it works. You came in worshiping today, and dare I say it, in a group this size, it's I mean it's highly likely. I mean, maybe we are the most most holy church in Toowoomba, right? But it's highly likely that you come in. Some of you have come in not worshiping Jesus. There's only two options for your worship, creator or creation. We find this out from Romans chapter 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We always give ourselves in relationship to something and there's always something that occupies the God place in our lives that we give ourselves in relationship to. We were made to orient around God and give ourselves in relationship to him. Now, if you get into the Old Testament, what you'll find out is, is the relationship that God wants to have with you, the way that he sees it, the, the relationship he has with his church, is a marriage relationship. That's what it is. It's him, the husband, and his people, the bride. That's what it is. And like any good marriage, it thrives on exclusivity. Break it. And you strike at the heart of that relationship. Number two. <laughs> You're an adulterer. You're an adulterer. I'm an adulterer. What's James talking about? What James is talking about is uh, 
the people who have been overtaken by their desires have had an affair. That's what he's saying. And I, I want you to hear me on this. <laughs> Every single time that you sin, your sin is the fruit of an affair with a false god. That's what it is. Every single time. Because you might sit there and you go, I don't know whether I was an adulterer this week and I just go, what, did you sin? And if you say yes, <laughs> you're an adulterer. Because here's what I want you to hear, right? A physical affair always starts as an affair in the heart. Always. It always starts as an affair in the heart. And do you know something? You can't just say yes to one thing without saying no to another. Adam and Eve in the garden, when they chose to take of the fruit, said yes to themselves and they said no to God. They said, we don't like you that much. We like ourselves. See, James here in James 4 verse 4 is using marital language this is marital language now you go on to the next section of it i'll just read those uh, couple of verses or that verse there you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god so at that point you go oh he's just talking about friends right it's like no because friendship back in the day was more than what we think about friendship now. This is close friendship. This is shared values and loyalties. This is actually turning to someone else. It's turning to another lover. That's what this is. You see, when someone commits adultery, it isn't just about the person they're going after. It's also about the person who's their spouse. You say something about them as well. Now, you might say at this point in time, uh, well, I still like Jesus. I just had a little flirtatious moment. I just, can I not just have the other thing as well? And I'm just going, no, no, you can't. You swapped him out. I mean, what husband or wife is going to cop that? You know, you think about a husband or wife, a wife or a husband goes up to their spouse and says, hey, I really, I really do like you. I just want to hang out with this other person. And then you just go, what are you, out of your mind? You can't do that. This is what James is saying. To love the world, to let our desires take over our hearts, is to become God's enemy. Every time a desire rules you, you commit adultery. Every time. Yeah, it's me. It's a bit heavy. It's like, well, these are not my ideas. These are not my ideas. You know, the reality is that you give yourself in relational worship to some other god when you sin, and then your behaviour follows. This is Ezekiel. 14 verse 1 to 3, as I mentioned before, a physical affair always begins as an affair of the heart. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me, they sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel the prophet, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. I brought it right in. And do you know though, this is the really gritty bit, and uh, if, you're, if you're up for this, you could, you could just have... Um, a bit of a pray about this during the week. But um, do you know what we see in the Old Testament is we see the Israelites preferring someone else right in front of God's face. And God's, God's prophets talk to them and say, you're doing this right in the temple. You're doing it right in front of me. Like there's a brazenness to what they do. You know, and I think back to the fall of humanity in Genesis 3 and it's like Adam and Eve, it's not like they're just randomly out in the wilderness, you know, they went for a, I don't know, a half marathon, you know, and they're out somewhere in the back box. No, they're right in the middle of a garden. That's where they are and right in the middle of a garden, right in the middle of the presence of God where he would walk in the cool of the day, they say, no thanks, 
I'll have what that guy's saying. I'll have what I want. Now, there is a book in the Old Testament that is pretty intense and uh, pursues this very dynamic, uh, really, um, really confrontationally, to be honest, and that's the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament around the 8th century, um, prophesied about God's people. I want to read you a couple of sections from Hosea. Here's the first one. It's on the screen. It's the beginning of the book. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Go and marry a prostitute and have children of whoredom, prostitution, for the land commits great whoredom, prostitution, by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. There's a fair bit of debate about, um, theologically, about... um, some of the details of Hosea. But at one level, to me, it looks a little bit, as I've done some study on it, like maybe her first child was Hosea and then maybe the next two were actually the fruit of prostitution. What's, what's God saying? He's saying, you, Hosea, need to be a living parable of what it's like for me. So go and marry a prostitute who is not reformed of her ways in the end, who will leave you, and go and be a prostitute and keep loving it because my people do that to me. It's graphic, right? How would you go with that? <laughs> Look, I just go, I mean, I'm checking my call as a prophet. It's like, did I really hear God at that point? <laughs> you know, we get a little way into the book and we get to chapter 3. And we see this, and the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You know, woe be to you who eat raisin toast. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a hamer and a lethak of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. That's, that's outrageous. What's he doing? He's got to go and buy his wife back. Do you see that? Like, who's doing that? He's going to the red light district, probably a town, with some stuff to buy his wife back. You uh, get into it in the Old Testament, you'll find that God reserves some of his most explicit language to describe his people's unfaithfulness. You know, I I dare say that if you're a parent, you haven't read Ezekiel 16 to your kids for nighttime devotions, right? Uh, It's it's pretty intense. Um, It's worth a read. I mean, you can hear the heartbrokenness of God because he talks about his people and how they grew up and how he cared for them and how he threw his corner of his garment over them and married them and then what happened is people became a prostitute they became a prostitute but they weren't even as good as a normal prostitute let me read a section for you from uh, ezekiel 16 how sick is your heart declares the lord god because you did all these things the deeds of a brazen prostitute building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorn payment. Didn't even get paid for the sex that you were giving away. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore and you gave payment. While no payment was given to you, therefore you were different. You know, I I spent uh, the recent holidays reading through Hosea twice. Slowly. Over about eight days. And... uh, it's just really sad. 
it's sad. Like you, you just see moments where God winds up in blazing, jilted lover reaction to his people and their unfaithfulness. And then other times just this broken heartedness of God that wants his people, wants his people back. And I saw how brazen my preferring other things right in front of him was. And the words of um, Hebrews 3 ring true about me and you could own them too if you want to and that's they always go astray in their heart. How many times this week did you go astray in your heart? Do you see it? Is it just a just a brief moment? Wasn't that significant? Do you see how serious this is? I was reading, um, I flicked through my Apple news feed every now and then and interestingly, yesterday, and I don't recommend you read a lot of these articles, but there was an article yesterday um, in my Apple news feed that was actually published yesterday by um, a lady anonymously, who promoted how good it was to have multiple and ongoing affairs. Let me read you her opening and her closing words. I have had three affairs and do not regret any of them. I was always attracted to the forbidden world of affairs and illicit love stories. My choice of books, movies and anything in between always seemed to have a love story with a twist. Any combination of an affair was of interest to me. If there was a third party, I'd lock in and be riveted from the get-go. And here's the closing words for her article. I'm not done yet because I know when an affair is good, there's nothing better. I am chasing that high again and yes, I see the hypocrisy of my ways, all care, no responsibility, this is the chase. I wonder how you feel about that. Does that that sit easy with you? Do you know what I want to say? I don't know who this is, so this is not a public shaming in a sense. You know what I want to say? She's not a loving person. Why is she not a loving person? Because she's doing it for herself. That's why. You see that in the end. In the last few sentences, it's all about her. Who does she really love? Not the people she's having an affair with. She loves herself. And I would say to her, that's what got us into this mess in the first place. We curved in and loved ourselves. And that's our problem now. It's like we, we have these moments during the week where we just want to get the stuff that we want for us and and that is kind of the thing that drives our unfaithfulness to God it's like we just got to get it you know in the book that I'm writing at the moment like I've got this whole section about how Adam and Eve were the first ram raiders they were the first smash and grabbers you know they're in the garden and they smash through God's rules and they grab what they can and they run and hide They wanted what they wanted and they wanted it for them and they wanted it now. What's what's this lady doing? Well, it's just another age-old smash and grab, isn't it? I'm going to smash through a barrier, I'm going to grab what I want and then I'm going to go and I'll go on to the next one. And you ought to, if you see, if you see some of this tendency, and this is, This is where I got to. I just went, what will ever change this tendency to go astray? I won't ask you to put your hands up, but just in your heart, is anyone anyone with me on this? Is is anyone tired of going astray and you just go, "What? what will ever stop this? And then you've got the consideration, like when you realise that you've been unfaithful, it's like, man, I, yes, I have. How, how do I get that right? How do I make the relationship right again? And do you know something? I'll just say this to you. 
that if you have been unfaithful to someone, you, you, there's a couple of things that you can do, but basically you don't have much power. All of a sudden you've just handed all the power over to your spouse, you've handed all the power over to God, which you had anyway, but you've handed it all over and you, you're at their mercy, right? You're at their mercy. Let's, uh, let's finish well. You ready for this? You, you are loved. Read James 4 verse 5 to 6 with me. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us, but he gives more grace? Now, talks about jealousy here, right? Now, most of the time when people think about jealousy, they think about envy. They kind of put those two terms together and they think negatively about it. Um, it's kind of like this jealousy for us is we just want something that we don't have. And that is the source of a bunch of trouble. And we see a bunch of trouble that comes out of ungodly jealousy in the Bible. But we also find out in the Bible that God is a jealous God. It's in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So, all jealousy can't be wrong. What's the writer talking about in James? Well, I want you to try this on. Imagine you, uh, you came to church. There's a husband and wife in the church. And uh, they love each other. They're close to each other. And on this particular Sunday, you know, um, praying this never happens. But on this particular Sunday, you're standing there and you're sipping your latte after church. And you... Uh, you look over to this side and you just go, that's weird. Some dude looks like he's cutting in on that guy's wife. Right? And you just go, no, it can't be. That can't happen. And then the next Sunday you, you order your latte and it's happening again and the coffee just doesn't taste any good anymore. You know, you just go, this is, what is going on over there? And, and you work out that's actually what's happening. This, this loving couple, there's another man who's cutting in on, her, on his wife. So you just go, hey, what am I going to do about it? So you just, you do what's obvious. You go and tell Jaden. <laughs> yeah. And um, no, seriously, you just go, I'm, I'm going to go and have a bit of a chat to, um, to that husband um, about what's going on there. Um, so you go over and you go, hey, man, have you, have you noticed there's like, they, seriously, there's a dude that's hitting on your wife at morning tea after church. What if he said to you, uh, ah, it's, all, it's all good, mate? That would be weird, right? Wouldn't it? That would be weird. You just go, oh, that doesn't make sense. Uh, what if you went to him and you said, mate, I think, um, there's a woman who, there's a man who's hitting on your wife, and he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. Like in terms of God's law, um, he's he's not doing the correct thing, and he needs to start doing what is correct and righteous. <laughs> and you just go, well, you could you could do that. You could hear that, and you go, oh, okay, I'm going to give you. It's like. You know, really complex maths exams. Like, well, I'm give you, going to give you marks for your working out, but you're not going to get that one right. Okay? What if you went and said, man, I think there's a dude that's hitting on your wife, and he flips out his phone and starts Googling Hitman? <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? At that point, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you go at that point, you go, oh, I think he loves her. I think he loves her. Because you know, you know, this is the reality about marriage. This is the reality. Song of Songs. You know this one, right? My beloved is mine and I am his. See, when you get married, what do you do? You give yourself to each other. The husband gives himself to, to his wife. And the wife gives herself to him. 
It's not, I'm not talking about possessiveness, but I tell you something, that particular couple, that husband, his wife belongs to him, not to that other man. And it's entirely right, and he needs to be careful about what he does, but it's entirely right for him to be jealous of another man cutting in on his wife. True? Entirely right. In fact, if he wasn't jealous, we could get pretty quickly to the conclusion that he wasn't particularly in love with her. True? So, what do you meant to pick up from this? When you commit spiritual adultery, God's jealous of you. It matters to him. Why does it matter to him? Because he loves you. (laughs) That's why it matters to him. No jealousy, no love. God wants you exclusively for himself. He wants all of your love. He wants all of you. This, this is part of a normal marriage vow, right? These are, here's an excerpt out of some of the vows that we use for weddings at the project. Listen to this. All that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. That's, that's what marriage is. It's a good slab of what marriage is. It's what it's meant to be between us and God. Here's the problem. We have one who is jealous and he is the Lord of all. He deserves our allegiance, but we don't get through a day without having an affair. (laughs) What are we to do? Is Peter saying that tomorrow morning? You need to get up and try harder. Is that going to make the relationship right? Like if you get up tomorrow and it's like, I'm going to work really, really hard and I'm going to do my best not to have a day uh, where I have an affair, a spiritual affair. And I think I'm all for trying hard, right? I'm just saying that trying harder after you've had an affair doesn't actually fix the relationship up. Because you might remember at the end of the uh, last James message that I preached a month ago, I said that for things to be right between a couple where there's been adultery and where there's been unfaithfulness there needs to be love that still exists we've just established that with jealousy you know what the other thing you need is you need forgiveness that's what you need you need love and forgiveness you know and as I uh, reflect and just as we wrap up maybe the worship team can come up now we go back to that question what will change this wayward heart of mine what will change your wayward heart? Well, I'll tell you something. Trying harder is not going to change it. <laughs> but to be completely loved, for there to be a love that goes over the top of unfaithfulness, that'll change you. You know, I, when I read through Hosea, I'm just going, what all, I need to get some tips from uh, the book of Hosea about how people need to repent. You know, how do, they need to, how do they need to turn so that they can fix things up between them and God? And you know the feeling that you get in Hosea if you read it is you just go, these people aren't going to turn. And they don't. Historically, they don't turn and they go into exile. And I, I kind of went, well, where's their hope? And you know what their hope is? Is that over the top of all of the unfaithfulness, there would be a love that can cover that. And, and that love is truly transformative. Like when you realise, and this is, this is critical, this is critical for you, this is critical for me, we are in a powerless position where we can do nothing about it. Nothing. You can't get out of it. An unfaithful spouse is basically in a powerless position to get out of it. There are things they can do, but not the big things. It turns out that God shows up with transforming love, with deep love, something bigger and stronger than your wayward heart. Isn't that good news? And and it ends, and it's, it's appropriate and right for us this morning to end with the words of James. 
but he gives more grace. It's not just love, there's forgiveness. Are there any better words to hear at the end of a message like today than that? He gives more. Not 10 litres. <laughs> well, you imagine that and say, well, you get another 10 litres. You go, okay, excellent. That's going to be done by about Wednesday. It's more like, it's like how much more? It's just more. And like, it's like, that, that's like perfectly what you and I need to hear, isn't it? Like we go to God and we just go, ah, oh, jeez. You know, I've done it again. Guess what? I've got more. It's going, well, how much? Well, it's more. I've got more. Oh, you need some more. I've got more. What's grace? Well, grace is more favour. There's more help. There's more forgiveness. There's more of what you don't deserve. That's That's what more is. You blew it again. But he gives more grace. Everyone else has given up on you. It's like, man, you just got it so wrong for so long. But he gives more grace. You go, I can't go on. It's it's too many times. It's 150 times in the last 10 minutes. I've blown it. I've done the same thing. Why don't I ever learn? But he gives more grace. You're sick of yourself. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You're just going, I don't, like seriously, I'm so done with me. I'm not even thinking that much about God or other people. This is ridiculous. Like I am completely unpresentable. But he gives more grace. You give yourself up. It's like, all right, I'm not fighting it anymore. There's no excuses. There's no self-justification. This is me in all my mess but it gives more grace everyone saw it everyone saw what i did everyone um saw me do it Um, but it gives more grace you you did it on purpose it was intentional it's like god i actually went after it it wasn't an accident um but it gives more grace um you get the get the point you can expect God to turn up when everyone else doesn't. Do you hear that? You can expect God to turn up when everyone else doesn't. He will be there for you. And you'll get another chance. How do I know? Because he paid for it all in advance. He knew what was coming. He knew what you were like. 